I put such value in the roles I've played. But if you know, at least from the Anishinaabe Moan language and all these sorts of concepts, you know that our concept is less about the doing and more about the being. Well, Jesse is super excited that we have the opportunity to talk. I feel like I've heard your name several, maybe thousands of times from different other Indigenous artists and storytellers within the Toronto area. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Jesse Wente is a husband and a father, as well as a writer, broadcaster, speaker, and arts administrator. Born and raised in Toronto, he's an Ojibwe member of the Serpent River First Nation, and he was a film critic and then a culture critic and a columnist at CBC for almost 27 years until the end of 2022. In 2017, he became the first Indigenous person to chair the Canada Council for the Arts, where he still serves. And he's also been on the board of directors for the Toronto Arts Council for the last eight years. And he served on Imaginative, which I also have a lot of friends that have been on Imaginative. And you're also the executive director at Indigenous Screen Office, which champions Indigenous screen-based storytellers and narrative sovereignty through their funding and advocacy work. And I also picked up your book last year, I believe it was, his book, Unrecognized Reconciled Family Truth and Indigenous Resistance has won a few awards. And that's where I first saw your name. And then I started putting all the pieces together. And I was like, wow, what have you not done? <laughs> yeah. Is there anything that I didn't touch on in the introduction that you wanted to speak about? No, I mean, I, I think that is all uh, true. I mean, there's there's maybe some updates. I mean, I, I'm no longer the uh, uh, executive director of the screen office. I uh, stepped down at the end of the year. But other than that, that's uh, it. When you read it like that, Shayla, it's uh, it's even more exhausting than of having lived it. <laughs> I mean, as I was looking through it, I was like, should I leave something out? But they're all so like different, and I mean, you've probably had several different experiences in each, so you just want to bring them to life and give credit to all the work that you've done and continue to do within Toronto and the surrounding areas. And I just want to know, like, how are you feeling, like, for this year? Like, how have you been? Hmm. Uh, I'm feeling good. Uh, you know, it's been a, a long process, similar to what I see with with you. You know, you do a lot of things. Uh, you, you know, you try it. That's how you build a, a career and a life. And you and um, I'm a big believer in saying yes to a lot of things. Uh, although I'm I'm getting as I get older more used to saying no to uh, preserve myself. But I think when you're young, it's good to say yes to a lot of stuff and like sort stuff out and see what what. It, what holds your interest and like what's what's interesting so yeah in terms of this year uh, i'm feeling really good it's it's been a transition year for me it's it's after you read all those things it's so interesting i'm in a point in my life where i'm uh, not doing as many things and i'm finding that very comforting yeah, it's funny that you say you're used to saying yes to so many things. And I think a lot of other Indigenous people can relate to having saying yes to so many things because at one point we didn't have all these opportunities or our grandparents did or our ancestors. And so I almost feel like there's this survival mechanism embedded in me. Like I need to say yes so that I can champion this for the people that couldn't. But at stake is your mental, physical, spiritual health. That's why I took off to India at the beginning of the year to heal from burnout. And so I'm curious to know if you you have practices in your life that have allowed you to remain connected to your own values, to your own spirit in a society that's so quick and so fast paced? Like what are your rituals that keep you connected to who you are? Well, it's so interesting we're having this conversation now because I, I, I don't know if I would have had a, um, a good answer for that even 
a few years ago. Because I, you know, for me, I came into much of this sort of thing much more recently in my life. I, I was very busy uh, for so much, so many years that I didn't leave a lot of space for anything else. And that sense of burnout, I think I've felt that, I would say, for a very long time and just kept going. For uh, And in terms of practices, the most vital one, which is maybe not exactly what you were looking for, is a therapy. I do a <laughs> lot of therapy with a... Um, an Anishinaabe uh, therapist. So it's a, it's a sort of mix of traditional Western traditional therapy and our traditions and ceremony and, and those sorts of things. That's been life-saving, I would say, for the past. Um, I've been doing that. She recently reminded me, I think we're approaching 100 sessions, so it's kind of, you know two and a half years, something like that. So that's also guided me to um, a meditation. I do meditation pretty much every day, certainly every day before bed. Those, I think, are, are, have probably been it. And then uh, spending a lot more time just outside and being a little more active. You named all those careers, and a lot of those require a sitting and uh, in the dark, doing, <laughs> you know, in enclosed spaces. So just not being inside and sort of being outside and out and about, that's all been really helpful. But I would say therapy and the meditation combined have really allowed me to heal and feel in a better place, in a, in a place to say no. I think there's the the notion of scarcity where, well, if I say no to this, will I get another chance to do this? Especially in, you know, a fairly small sector like the Canadian art scene or cultural sector where I think there's already a sense of scarcity. I think of the, the indigenous companies I've worked with where, you know, their budgets were less than the salaries of some companies' CEOs. This sort of, sort of scarcity is built in. So I think a lot of us take that in. And so we say yes, because we don't, we imagine. I've sort of done away with that. And maybe that's a privileged thing. Maybe that's an old, getting older thing. But I, I also just don't believe that that's true. I think it's actually important. And I wish I'd learned this lesson much earlier to sort of conserve your energy and really pick what's the most meaningful and focus on that. Yeah, well, isn't it like kind of an interesting reflection that when we believe in scarcity, sometimes that's also at like becoming scarce within our own selves, that burnout feeling and then constantly going. And we don't recognize that sometimes we really need to return back to therapy or return back to nature so that we can give that much more within these spaces. And so I'm curious to know like how you came to be within these spaces. I mean, oftentimes we see someone's bio and we read all these accomplishments and success, but we don't really know the backstory of like, where did this all start? How did you get into the arts? Was this something that you always wanted to do as a child? I know you speak about it in your book, but I, I just want to give credit to a bit of your story. Like what made you want to champion the art so much? Well, I, I think I probably wanted to be an artist. I think was the, was the, um, you know, I fell in love with movies at a very young age and, and it certainly helped that, you know, Star Wars was the first movie I saw in a movie theater. And when you're like three years old and it's 1977, that changed a lot of people's lives who had that exact same experience that I did in that, with that particular movie. And when I think back on it, it's been chasing that feeling of, of what it was to be that kid with the wonderment and the amazement and sort of the being transported and all of that feeling 
of just trying to capture that. And then in terms of how the career, my career has unfolded, that's really an example of saying yes and being very open to what that means in terms of wanting to be a part of it. When I was young, there wasn't really a discernible pathway to being a filmmaker in Canada for an Indigenous person. Like there was, um, you know, Alanisa Bomsawin and Gil Cardinal and maybe Loretta Todd. The point is there weren't that many people. And all of those folks I just named had made films for the National Film Board. They didn't work outside in the larger sector necessarily. They worked in this very sort of enclosed space. So I didn't really know how you became, would would do that. Like I had no connections or idea of how you would get into the film business, no examples. And so becoming a film critic just happened to be the pathway. It's not at all what I intended or wanted or thought would be good, but it was like, well, you'll watch movies every <laughs> like week and they'll pay you and you write about them. So you're sort of in the industry, and then it just uh, became a, you know, I ended up falling in love with with radio as a medium and uh, did that for a very long time while sort of keeping the movie stuff. And then for me, it was also, uh, you know, I was always very interested in how our folks could have the things that I saw other folks had, which was theaters and orchestras and all this stuff that was I, I was exposed to as a kid in Toronto, there were no other First Nations people. I don't even think in the building most of the time I was ex having these experiences, if I had to guess, certainly not on stage. You know, and I got to see the ballet and the symphony and the jazz festival and all these sorts of incredible things. And you just, we were not present. We were not anywhere. And it always really bugged me that that was the way because I wanted to do that. And so I wanted to be present there. And luckily, you know, you, you find your, your community and mine it met a similar people that were also interested in being a part of it, who were a similar stage in their lives, who were starting uh, film festivals and doing this, all this other work. You know, I met all these people and they really provided the space or helped me feel that there was space for us. And then we also worked really hard to create our own, create our own space. I love that because like what you speak of not really having as much role models because there wasn't access to Indigenous representation within these spaces to now wanting to create space where there can be more Indigenous representation within these spaces. It sounds like you made that happen through the people that you met and through the vision that you spoke of to the community of like-minded folks. Would you say that that's how it kind of happened for you? Yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was a group of us and all of us were building on stuff that other people had already started. Like, it's all part of a continuum. We're all in the same struggle that has gone back now for generations. And you sort of pick up those things. You know, I grew up in the city. The trips back to my community were, you know, annual, but that was it. You know, I didn't really live in the community. So there was a really struggle of sense of like, well, what, you know, what is this? Uh, you know, if you've read the book, you get a sense that like, you know, when you're a kid and the kids on the playground are beating you up and calling you a dirty Indian, but you don't know any other Indians than your family, you can go like, what is, what is this? Like, what does this mean? And certainly I think a big part of my journey just as a human was trying to reconcile that 
with, well, what does that actually mean? Like, what is it mm. to be an indigenous? What is it? Forget indigenous, because I don't even think that that's a thing. What is it to be for me, an Anishinaabe man in 2023? You know, you're on your own uh, journey figuring out what, I think that's what we're all trying to figure out. So for me, that artistic community, meeting other folks who are also on that journey, or some who are more advanced, you know, I met people, these elders who had been doing these same things for so long, you learn. So yeah, I think I found great strength in that, great support. At the same time, I wasn't often surrounded by those people. Those people weren't necessarily present at the places I worked. If you, you know, go back to what you read about my biography, like half of that's employment and half of that's volunteer. And it's when I volunteered, that's when I was with those folks. And when I worked at the CBC or at the film festival or anywhere else, until the screen office, I was the only only one of us in the room, typically. Yeah, and I, I I recognize that through reading your bio because it did mention that you were the first programmer for Toronto Indigenous Film Festival that was Indigenous. And I can see parallels in my career in the sense of I also didn't grow up within my First Nations community. I grew up um, in Medicine Hat, Alberta, which is a predominantly white community. Same thing, like my family was pretty much the only brown family that was there. And so I often, you know, question my own indigeneity, what it meant to be Red River Métis, what it meant mm. to be Nahiao. And so I I think we're always questioning ourselves. I'm curious to know, like, because oftentimes you're the only Indigenous voice within those spaces, maybe now it's changing, but like, what were your values in that space? And how do you, how did you stay connected to your values um, within predominantly white spaces? Hmm. Well, my, my values were always what is the best decision for the greatest number? Like, what's the best decision for community? You know, our positionality or First Nations positionality in these discussions is one of sovereignty. So we should never be uh, seeking an equity position in anything. It's that's the ba- that's where we argue for anything from. That should be what you your arguments spring from. And just adhering to that, I, I mean, I'm I'm very lucky. I had really great parents. Both you know, both my my Anishinaabe mom and my very distinctly not Anishinaabe dad. But they were hippies, like they had a, you know, they were sort of embedded with a value system that was pretty anti-capitalist already and like not into the church and all, you know, so they were already counterculture as much as they could be. Although I think my dad would say they didn't go, his generation sort of failed mine and yours in the end and that they, they had a, they had a real chance. Uh, because they had the mass, there were so many of them to make change, and they sort of all moved to the suburbs and got day jobs, um, but not to cast aspersions. But um, I had that value system, I did, and it, to me, that sort of guided it. And sometimes that's meant you can't stay in the job; you have to leave the job because you you've crossed a, a plane. And I just never wanted to be used. I never wanted to be used against the community. So, so any moment where I felt. I was going to do harm by my presence, then I'm not going to be there. And I found my tolerance level is about 10 years. Hmm. Uh, That's about, if both in terms of CBC and uh, TIFF, and I'm coming up by the time of my end of my term at Canada Council, it'll be just shy of 10 years. I find that seems to be about my limit in any given colonial institution. 10 years is more patience than I think I would even have. You know what? Good. Because I would say, and I reflect about this a lot, I wouldn't want you to have to do that. That's sort of the whole point of what I've been trying to do is for you to to do whatever it is you want to do 
without the nonsense that uh, people may have had to go through before. If what you want to do is not at ever work inside a colonial institution, great, then don't. <laughs> and for those of us that that's what we want to do, and again, I think I was sort of built to do this work, built to be in both places, if you know what I mean. And we can talk about this. I don't actually believe I'm in both places, but but able to work in, in both places. But that's that's not to say that that is for everyone. And I, and I actually say that would run counter to the whole point of it. The whole point of it is to gain the experience so that we can do it for ourselves. Well, it's kind of like a juggling act, I find, because oftentimes maybe what's at stake for your value system is like money. Like for me, that's been a big lesson is like, okay, because I come from poverty and I come from a family that was poor, I almost feel like sometimes it's almost like a compromise of your value system because you need to put food on the table. That's the challenging thing that I'm finding is like, how do we remain connected to these value systems of kinship and right relation and creating a sustainable life? Yet we're still living within a colonial society and we still need to make money and put stuff on the table. And so I really respect what you did with, um, I believe it was in 2017 when you resigned from TIFF because they didn't, you know, support your words when you said that they shouldn't move forward with. Oh, Hostiles, yeah. Hostiles, yeah. yeah. God, I haven't even thought of that movie. (laughs) Well, I was reading it and I was like, wow, like what would I have done in that situation? Because essentially what happened was you provided like this film is deeply racist and this is the type of film that shouldn't be created. And then TIFF went ahead and just approved it anyway. And it was in the Toronto International Film Festival. And then they did a land acknowledgement right before the premiere of the film. What was that like for you? Like, how did you come to the decision to, you know, resign? That would have been challenging for me if I was in your shoes. Yeah, I mean, it's not like it boiled down to the one moment. Uh, I think that was more the the moment where I was like, wow, there's really no, you know, no going back. And and I guess I just felt also that that it was crossing the point where people will start to get harmed. Like the community can be Mm -hmm. harmed, I Mm -hmm. can be harmed. And and it also came at a point, and I would say this about like all of my departures, because I, you know, I also quit the CBC for a variety of reasons. You know, I would say by nature of who I am, I tend to plan, even when they they seem sudden, I tend to have some plan in terms. It also came when I knew I was going to go write the book, so I didn't have that worry of like scarcity. But I also just think you know we have to. I feel very protective of the community. And this is actually something I've worked on in therapy is to try not to be feel so protective because it's not on us. Like, we can't stop all the harm from happening. True. Uh, you know, as much as the bear clan in me wants to, like, chase away all the badness, you can't always get rid of all of it. And I can't own all of it either. But But I can own the parts that I do. And so, like, for me, it was just a matter of, well, if I stay, can I fix this? And, it, and at that moment, it didn't feel like I could. And I would also say, when you're seeking to change systems, whether they be institutions or larger systems. You always need, I'll narrow down to just say organizational change. When an organization sort of is in a moment of change or needs to change, some people need to go and some people need to stay. And Mm -hmm. by that, I mean both in terms of people that are harmful to the institution, but also people who leave because the institution needs to understand how to retain or better care for those folks. In the end, it focused on me building 
another sort of thing for us because uh, I, you know, I left the TIFF and then was uh, named, uh, you know, founding director of the Indigenous Screen Office very soon after, which was not at all actually the intention when I left <laughs> TIFF. It's just sort of how how it worked out. It was one of those moments where I do recognize that sometimes you are where you are meant to be, even when you go. This is feels bad. But it's like, no, my time at TIFF really had come to an end. I'd done probably as much as I was going to be able to do there. And my whatever, me, I was better served doing something else. And I think that has proven true. We now have something mm-hmm. that exists. Totally. Yes, they should have been in the budget. So I hope uh, the the prime minister, who I know you've got a big fan base, uh, <laughs> Shayla, so I'm hoping <laughs> that all the folks in power who listen to uh, your show uh, we'll know that the screen office should have been in the most recent budget. But it's it's an agency that exists that just didn't and I think is there to serve our community in a way that we've just needed for so long. And I do think it'll be transformational in the long term. And I wouldn't have done that if I'd, if I'd stayed at TIFF. So those things all tend to work out in the end. Exactly. And it's also practicing, I believe, like non-attachment to the roles that we're playing within society. Now that you've been the executive director of Indigenous Screen Office and you've gone through CBC Radio, you've gone through TIFF, with all your experience, do you feel like the industry is shifting to be inclusive to Indigenous voices? Do you find, like you just mentioned, they're, they're, they should have been more funding? How do you feel about things right now? Oh, I think I think there's been an enormous shift. If if you know if you want to take my lifetime as the, which I don't think is a bad era, even if you want to take my adult life, you know, twenty whatever years. Oh, that's actually thirty. Oh, boy, that was a little painful to realize. But um, <laughs> you know, if you want to take all of that. Tremendous change. This is this is one of the great benefits of being a friend of Alanis Abamsawin. She's in her nineties, and she's always there to say, "Look at how much has changed, right?" And I and she's a great one because it's like, yeah, you're right, Alanis. You have seen so much tr- change in your life. I get it. So I think enormous amounts have changed, both in terms of the the industry, like the sector, but also I think in terms of the desires of the audience to actually know, I think the biggest change, quite frankly, is more that Canadians have have felt the loss, I think recently especially, because, you know, post-Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I think just the starkness of the truths told and that are continued to sort of be told since then, sort of all of that unfolding has meant that they feel the absence of the tr- of that truth in our stories and who we are in a way that they just never have before. And it sort of upsets them in a way that it never, for good and bad, because I don't know if it always benefits us. I think they went, oh, there's a whole separate thing that they've sort of grappling with. So I think that also helps in that there's mm-hmm. an audience that's actually trying to seek this out. And I think we've also benefited from, as we always have as communities, because this is why we're in a, a joint struggle, we've also benefited from the fact that other communities' struggles have, you know, are always intertwined with our own, right? So if we think of the, you know, the ongoing struggle for black liberation, like that's always been very intertwined with um, uh, First Nations sovereignty or, or Inuit or Métis sovereignty. So like they're pretty inextricable and those movements have been undulating together for the last few years. And I think we've we, we've benefited as does they. You know, the Indigenous Screen Office was founded and soon after we had the Black Screen Office and we had all of these other communities modeling themselves just like we may also may learn from the activism from those communities. 
So I think all of that has, um, yeah, has meant enormous, enormous change. Could it be better? Of course. Mm-hmm. The funding I talk about is from the government and, you know, they, they tend to be uh, a little slower to change. So I think it's getting better. I think there's, there's, of course, we're experiencing quite a backlash against all of this progress and we must steel ourselves against those. But I also think the vast majority of people are in tuned with this. And I think we're also aided. I'm going to say aided. It's not exactly right. But the dominant systems are also, I think, at this point in pretty clear collapse. So there's also a yearning for something that is not this. And that has both proven positive in terms of people sort of turning to our communities to understand a different understanding of the world. And it's been negative in terms of some people seek answers that are just... We're, we're into flat earth territory. All of that means that we're in a, our communities are sort of in a better place. Plus we are healing. I see mm. it in my kids. I see it in my family. I see it when I go home. I see it in the powwows that, that are in place that didn't used to be in place. Like I, I see it in the language classes and the, I see it all over the place, the signs of the healing. And I, I even see it in how we are able to approach our own traumas both as a community, as individuals. We're, in a, we're sort of moving through them in a different way at this moment. And I think that's reflective of we've healed and we're still going. And I think that's always been the secret, is, is that almost really creating the space for us to heal because our power, when we're fully healed again, I don't, I, you know, I think we'll be fine. Part of my message is more like, hey, let's get, all get together because... You know, there's a big change coming and it would benefit everyone if we sort of understand each other way better because we're going to be in a place where we're going to have to. So let's get over some of this history stuff. And it's generational. Like, I'm not saying this is five, ten years even down the road, but it's, I just look at the fact that kids today, Shayla, like, uh, I don't know when you went to school, but I'm going to guess that you probably weren't taught much about like real Canadian history. Mm -mm. Right. But to kids today get a much different flavor um you know my kids history is way more interesting that is the sign right that that those kids when they're our age or my age your age whatever age when they're when they're in charge they're going to be discussing these things from a very different understanding so if we're healed and that's the understanding well then stuff's going to happen and we need everyone should sort of be in a place to be able to encounter that accept that yeah Yeah, no, I love that you bring the focus back to healing, because I think right now we are in the destruction and the dismantling of these old systems and timelines. And I think there's a lot of fear of what's going to be on the other side of the unknown, because we still have yet to create that. And I think often, too, the government is trying to put a lot of policies in place and bills in place to really restrict our movement. Um, Even as Indigenous people online, I don't know if you're familiar with Bill C-10 or Bill C-11, what they're trying to pass to now modify and regulate Canadian content creators. For me, sometimes I get on the side of fear and I'm like, well, what does that mean for our livelihood? What does that mean for even us talking right now? Are we going to have access to community and to each other? Because what happens when we do come together? And I think that's what they're fearful of. And so they're really trying to silence and almost suppress our voices again in a, almost a modern day modern day sense now. Um, so I love that you focus more on healing because I, I almost see it in real time, them trying to enforce the same restrictions that they almost enforced on our ancestors. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, um, you know, colonialism doesn't stop, right? It's an ongoing process. They, it's just renamed and sort of refashioned as things, depending on what's sort of socially acceptable at any sort of given moment. I certainly have familiarity with those bills. Less C-10, uh, C-11, the screen office advocated very much for a different sort of form of inclusion or representation of Indigenous people within that bill. I think we were always a little uncomfortable with some of the additional stuff around content creator or so-called content creators. I don't like that word. I like, uh, you know, whatever. I don't think, whatever. I, I don't love, love the terminology, but I'm not here to argue English over that stuff. But, um, you know, I, I think you ultimately need to update the, the Broadcasting Act. But I think you always have to do these things, especially in, in the Canadian media landscape. Like the goal should be innovation. Because the the challenge that the Canadian media landscape has is one of antiquity. You know, it's 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 based on a very old model that has not been updated. That's part of why you need to update the Broadcasting Act. Um, but while you do that, and while you sort of urge legacy media to maybe rethink some things and and consider doing new things, you also have to let new stuff grow. You know, I I think the ISO, me, I think we always we did always express concern about because indigenous people, of course, who have been locked out of the system for so many years, effectively, naturally started doing stuff on their own. And so, like the last thing you want to do is pass a bill that says no, you can't do that. And and I've never been as interested as some of my um, colleagues from other sort of areas of the sector around like messing with the algorithm. My position was always, ultimately, we should tax the hell out of these enormous global corporations. Because I think the great resource extraction project of colonialism now is not one of natural resources, it's one of data. Yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah. and humans. And, you know, it's interesting in Canada, they know every drop of oil that's pulled from the ground in Canada because we have regulation over it. We have no idea about the data that these huge global companies, most of whom have uh, our market capitalizations that outstore, you know, outstrip most countries' um, GDPs, we don't know exactly all the data they are collecting, what they do with it, how they're going to monetize it. I suspect they don't fully know how they monetize it, except most of it is the source of their product. You know, if you think of Google or Facebook or Twitter, what is their product? It's us and our activity on those platforms. So everything we do is worth money to those corporations. And so what benefit do Canadians get from engaging in those platforms? And I think the, be the, the benefit we should get is money so that we can then take it and do what the hell we want with it, which should be investing in creators to be on those platforms and to be able to engage however, but also to like pave roads and build hostels and libraries and whatever else. I think the amount of wealth they're extracting, I think we don't even know. And I think it's enormous. And, and what's interesting is when I talk to the, the heads of these uh, companies, all of whom, of course, were trying or have been attempting to escape regulation, the money part, they're sort of okay with. I think if we could take that and then energize creators to do their best and just be vibrant and exist and invest in the culture that way, Canadian visibility on those platforms will, I think, just take care of itself. You know, totally. if we allow people like you 
to just be awesome. Yes, we need to boost ourselves up, but it's not because we're not good enough. It's that we're it's it's that we live next door to this enormous capitalist elephant that just sucks everything up and then regurgitates it for profit for its own profit later on and we just need to carve some space out in that uh, of that giant mechanism you know well i love that you bring up funding because that's something that i want to touch base on because i know indigenous screen office um, funds creators they have grants out there they have grants for indigenous storytellers to write films and stuff and i believe they also have a mentorship program too is that correct yeah mentorship cultural mentorship and they fund podcasts now Oh, really? They do. Okay, well, that's good to know. Because yeah. my next question was going to be, what's your advice for Indigenous creative creators that are wanting to have access to funding, but maybe they they don't have access to internet or they don't have, they live on the reserve. Like, yeah. how are you making sure that this funding is accessible to to all Indigenous creators? Yeah, it's a, it's a, a great question and a big, big uh, challenge, uh, as you know. So, you know, the screen office, obviously a lot of it exists online because that's the way of the world, but there's also phone numbers and ways to get a uh, hold of, you know, the thing with um, the screen office, the thing with arts funders in general, the secret sauce to all of them, the, all those people are there to give money away. That is their job. So, um, yeah, just phone. They'll help you guide through the process. There's a, a variety of ways that it can be uh, it can be done. Yeah, so that's that shouldn't be a barrier. That organization in particular is always super conscious because, of course, so many members of who we're trying to serve don't live in the South. And so we don't, you know, we're, we're always, cons- at least certainly, you know, again, so I shouldn't say we are, we, uh, anymore, but, um, you know, the ethos has always been figure out how to serve them. And just to, just to show you like the Canada council, its strategy right now is, is highly focused on artists in the North and it's done several trips now, physical trips, and it's always figuring out how better to serve. Not always now it is trying to figure out how better to serve exactly those, those communities but it's a very it's a struggle it's why i also advocate that uh, we need universal access i honestly think that internet should probably just be a public utility and i know no one really wants the government running anything else but they don't have to run it they they just have to fund it (laughs) and uh, uh, you know bell could still run it it's just would mean that they would be required to make sure everyone has it because I think at this point, you know, you're not really part of the discussion if you can't have access. And by access, I mean stable, high-speed internet connection. I think it's a democratic right at this point, uh, the way that... And what I would say to anyone who disagrees, well, we didn't make it that way. Corporations and governments did. So it's up th- up to them. Like, no one, none of us voted to make everything online capitalism uh, in bed with sort of these uh, uh, governments, they sort of pushed us to this. So they should be required to make sure everyone has the same access to it. And by the way, I think um, part of that should be that our communities should own. And I know there's a lot of folks working on those very things. And I think that's a really great way. And and I know you, you brought up, you know, how we navigate capitalism and it's a tricky thing. I think part of it is understanding we're born into it. So it's going to be hard to completely disconnect ourselves from having to exist in it, but we can be conscious and make more informed decisions and sort of navigate 
around those things and like starting a company that is going to deliver telecom like that that can be a good thing it doesn't have to be something that's purely a profit motive yeah i think like shifting perceptions maybe around it and obviously you're going to run into conflict and people that disagree with you but i think it's coming back to that greater good thing that you mentioned at the beginning of you know how you stay true to your values but A thing that came up to my mind when you're talking um, about access is now that we have access to these platforms, we're also seeing more of a rise of pretendians Mm. on these platforms. And we're also seeing more appropriation, cultural appropriation of indigenous culture and practices within film and TV and industry. And so can you share any insights on the realities of indigenous, like the appropriation of our culture that exists within the modern world and like is there a framework that the Indigenous Screen Office or even Canada Council for the Arts uses to determine or define or determine if someone's Indigenous or not? Yeah, I mean, obviously a few things. Obviously, I have some very personal, intimate experience with the issue in that I worked with someone on a project and she was not honest with who she was and it was really devastating. It was The harm of it was just unbelievable. In terms of the ISO, I mean, its approach has been to do research and to do policy development. And, you know, it's not really, it's never been a place where simple self-identification was. So really the idea was, well, if you're applying the Indigenous Screen Office, we get that you're self-identifying. So let's not even ask that question. Let's ask how you're doing that exactly. How do you come to this decision and in in asking framing it those ways, and they, and uh, you know, I'm being um, not exactly precise in my language in terms of how, there is a whole process you can go at the ISO and website and look at it in terms of the process of of how that's uh, determined. But it's it's basically framed with well, how do you do that? Canada Council is a bit different. It's it's still evolving its policy, but I think the the same idea sort of applies. It's like well, how when you ask how, well, there's a variety of answers that you can get key is that the person receiving those answers should know how to interpret and understand them because part of the issue is there is a variety of answers to that question. It's a very nuanced question. I think it's nuanced to folks not from (laughs) our communities. In our communities, I think, yeah, there's still nuance, but it's a little more clearer in terms of like what's going on because I think some of the answers to that how question are, you know, perfectly valid and yes, and and may mean that, you know, you're not well, what they would call in Canada status or enrolled or whatever, however you would want to put it, because there's very valid reasons why that is uh, true. It doesn't have anything to do with who's Indigenous or not, uh, really. But there's also answers you give to the how question that are... Uh, Uh, Not so great. And again, I have very experience (laughs) asking someone this question and uh, getting an answer that uh, was not great. And so I think the challenge from a organizational standpoint is, to be quite honest, is, is just the discomfort that so many of our own community have with these discussions yeah. and you're, you know, you're in this workplace and you have to do this and it can get uncomfortable very quickly. But I also think that for some of our community, they are actually very prepared. <laughs> so it's sort of finding the right mix of folks and setting up the process so that we can have these, these frank conversations. I think the good thing that, you know, that fell out of, of the situation I was involved in and, and everything was that it has required that we have these conversations. 
the generation sort of that I came up with had really fought very hard for self-ID. And, you know, it was very interesting in talking with some of those folks more in more recent times. You know, because at the time, Shayla, the desire was really to find people. And I might even include myself. Again, I have the stupid card. I have my community knows who I am. Like, I have none of the... Um, the sort of things that might make one uncomfortable in claiming this identity. I don't even say that I claim. It's so funny. Someone recently said that to my daughter. Does she claim Anishinaabe identity? And I sort of looked at them and I went, like, are we looking at the same person? Like, I don't know whether my daughter claims that or not. That's how people are going to treat her. So, uh, and I, that was with my experience too. It's like... I don't know if I claim this. It's been very clear to me from both my family and the kids on the playground from when I was a child that this was how people uh, understood me. Anyway, I'm glad we're having these conversations as painful as they are. I've certainly taken my experience, which was, you know, still, I'm still healing from it, is how hurt, how hurtful it is. So I definitely know the, the pain. But I also now, thanks to therapy mm. and all of my other, my meditation, I do understand that maybe there was a point because it did, that experience did sort of made sure I took it seriously. Yeah, my family also went through one of those. I think it is a shock to the system because you start to question your own faith sometimes in those situations. It, it was like a trickster feeling, you know? That, I mean, that nailed it in so many ways. <laughs> That's the, uh, the irony of saying that um, in my situation. Uh that's exactly what it was. It felt, and it was very disorienting. And I was brought up to be, and I think it's the Anishinaabe way, to be trusting. Because the way I was taught is that, like, people should be who they are and, like, present themselves. Like, you know, you're sort of truthful about things. And um, you accept people and, and hope they accept you and that it's all good. Yeah, that it, it was gaslighting. Like that, I, yeah. I never understood, I guess, truly what that word meant until someone tried to warp my own understanding of events that I was there for. Yeah, it was really hard, really hard. Yeah, I feel like we all had like big learning lessons, and even now, like the fact that they were having these conversations, I think, as you know, uncomfortable they as they may be, they're really essential so that we continue to, you know, not face hopefully the same harm in the future and that we can advocate for like authentic indigenous representation within these spaces. Yes, please. And, and, you know, I have a lot of space for people who want to be allies, maybe not allies, but I have space for people who want to be like accomplices and help. I have space for people who have family stories, just regard that the way it should be like i okay you have family stories maybe that doesn't really put you in a position to speak on behalf of our because again as someone who doesn't have like has a very secure knowledge of who i am and where my family comes from i questioned my right to speak for, yeah, for our community <laughs> I think we all go through that because I did the same thing. Um, I'm sure you did. <laughs> and then my friend was like, Shay I was like looking at myself in the mirror um, and I was like, am I even native? She's like, Shayla, you're like the most native looking girl out there. Like you're, you're question, you, you were proud to be native before it was even a cool thing to do. Like, and same thing, like you're saying, like my family denied their indigeneity just to survive back in the day. So now that we can reclaim it and be proud of it, like that's healing in itself. And I would hope that, you know, we, look past just funding or opportunities to claim something um, 
like indigeneity? Because I think oftentimes that's why it's claimed is for access to those things. It's a great point, And it's one that really sits with me as someone who's been an Indian their whole life. And I use that word with love from, from where I'm sitting from, not the way it's always been said to me from non-Indigenous folks. But I love the word for us. There was no opportunity. <laughs> like there, was, uh, there was nothing. Uh, and here we were still doing, like, my family was still the family. And, like, so, yes, I think, like, that's also very important. And none of this is meant to, like, dissuade people from reconnecting or doing any of it. Because our communities are so ready for that, mm-hmm. maybe more so than at any other time in my life. And people are very welcome. It's just a matter of understanding where we are and like sort of, you know, it's so interesting. You said you had that discussion with your friend. I mean, I had that discussion with one of my elders. What he said was, listen, you've spent a lot of time worrying about how to be Anishinaabe. I think you should stop because you're really Anishinaabe. And he's <laughs> like, it's the, and he's, and he was just like, whatever your imagination of being Amish, Anishinaabe is, that's not it. As your friend said, it's what you see in the mirror. The things you're doing now, how you exist in this world, that's what it is. It's a tough one. We're born in this very confusing time and we have to find ourselves. And I think that's the biggest struggle because colonialism, especially for indigenous people maybe, and our black cousins as well, violently disrupted our understanding of ourselves very purposefully and intentionally, like, and very, very violently, as violently as you can get, tried to rip that understanding of ourselves while also deluding everyone else into an understanding of themselves. Because I don't, I, I don't think anyone escapes this. The Anishinaabe, one of the big teachings that I've really taken in is that, like, for us, our communities, it is just being humble enough to grasp our own humanity. You're an animal like all the other animals trying to sort this stuff out. You're not smarter than, in fact, most of them are way smarter than you, you hairless ape who can't <laughs> like feed itself properly most of the time. Just being humble in that, I think if we could do that, you know, you, we, you would talk a little bit about the roles we're forced to play because capitalism requires, it focuses on what we do. It actually only cares about what you do cares not at all about who you are, the, the being of human being. And thus our entire societies, at least in this part of the world, are entirely oriented around the doing of things. But if you know, at least from the Anishinaabe Moan language, which I'm trying to learn and all these sorts of concepts, you know that our concept is less about the doing and more about the being. And again, I put such value in the roles I've played, in the, the things I did, or that I had at least. I, I, I still sort of do. But like to me, the titles that you read out, like at a time in my life, those are really important. Now, those are the things I did. They're not mm. who I am. The mm-hmm. husband, father, that's getting closer to who I am. And I think if we were able to ever truly get back to that place where we could, and I think this is, this is actually the secret of decolonization and all this stuff, is like the way we would have lived was to live in the being. Well, like we would have to totally reorient the society, which I, we might get a chance to because it's collapsing. Because the, the problem with the, the society of constantly doing is you can't actually do that. The, the, the hamster that runs on the wheel for its entire life lives a very short life 
it dies. It does not get in great shape. It does not get swole. It gets dead. Sometimes we, we get so bogged, we need to break. And my journey right now is just being comfortable with the being and being not worrying so much about what I'm doing. I've spent my whole life doing, and I want to I be for a while. Well, it comes back to living. And I think what, when we're feeling alive, that's when we're connected to our culture. And that's really what I learned in India, too, is I was like, how are these people so devoted to who they are? And it was their connection to culture, the connection to their ceremonies and their connection to their land and their language. And I think it's cool that you brought up language because even in Nehyao, Nehyao translates into a four-body person, which translates into the physical, mental, emotional, spiritual aspects of ourselves. So back in the day, our ancestors were like, we are human. We are a four-body person. And I was like, it really can be that simple. And I think when we think of decolonization and indigenous futurism, really it's returning to source and it's returning to who we are as human beings, like you're saying. And so when you think of indigenous futurism, you kind of already said it already, but like, what do you hope for, for our future? I mean, a return to that. Because I think so many of the challenges this society faces could be easily, not easily, but would be alleviated if we focused on the being. You know, we can still have the internet, but there might be a better use for it than necessarily, you know what I mean? Like, um, I think there's a way to be in this world. It's also, you know, you, you mentioned indigenous futurism. That's why I think in the end, storytelling has been so important to me, is that I think we need to tell stories and we need our folks to tell stories so we can imagine the future together. And not just our communities, but maybe the whole world. I spend a lot of time thinking about what it would look like. Uh, one day, maybe I'll get around to writing a story about it. But I'm so happy that so many of us, I think, are... It, it does seem to me something that's permeating a lot of our brains. I do imagine a future where our languages are back, everything's back. I can see it. And Canada's still here in some way. Like, it's not gone. My neighbors are still here. But there's, it's different. Uh, you, you went to New Zealand, you were saying, before we got on the broadcast. And what was the first language you heard when you, the plane landed? The Maori language. Ah, yeah. isn't that interesting? Yeah, it was all over too. And same thing happened. Like I had this, uh, another conversation with my friend and she was like, why are the kids so confident? Like they are just so confident in who they are. They're very outspoken. And then again, we're like, oh wow, it's a connection to culture and it's connection to language. So I saw parallels, yeah, with India and New Zealand. And I was like, wow, like that would be so cool if it was really embodied here in Canada. Yeah. Well, what's, what's interesting is I've been traveling in the north for, for a while. And that happened to me recently. Landed the plane and I heard Cree was the first language spoken over the intercom when we landed. And I was like, okay. That seems like such a minor thing. But like, I don't know. When I went to New Zealand and I went, uh, wow, over a decade ago, I remember landing there and hearing that and I went, oh, this is, what is this? And then I, I happened to go there during an election and so I turned on the TV. First, there was four Maori language TV channels. I don't know if there's even more now, but at the time there was, I think, four of them. There was a debate. I watched the whole debate, Kayla, <laughs> in Maori of just Maori politicians. And it's not a perfect place, but I think it's and it's starting, it sets some examples in terms of what we could envision actually living in right relations 
Because again, my ancestors thought that that was possible. Well, you are seeing more signs even on Alberta and like Blackfoot or in other languages too. So I think it is happening slowly but surely. And so I think as we continue advocating for it and coming together, then hopefully we see more of that within our future. Uh, Speaking of future, Jesse, Mm. how can people support you and your work and your book and everything that you're up to? Oh, wow. Uh, well, they can. the book is still available in the convenient, carryable uh, paperback uh, edition at all your fine booksellers. I highly recommend uh, any Black-owned or Indigenous-owned uh, book, Massey Books or a different book li- uh, out west or a different book list here in Toronto or, you know, any, any of those folks, local independent b- bookstores, libraries. That's probably the, the, the best support. I'm working on the next book. Now, which I guess technically I'm not supposed to uh, say, but it's a kid's book will be the next one that comes out. And then I'm sort of working on a bunch of other stuff. Um, so, yeah, that's really probably the the best way. And um, mostly what I would say is I hope people should support you and support <laughs> um, everything you're doing because I think it's just so inspiring. And um, it's really gratifying, Shayla, because um, when I was coming up, it was my dream that there would be people like you that I would be a guest on all of these indigenous shows hosted by all these great, that wasn't real. Like when I was uh, in my twenties, it's real now. And so I want to thank you for the work you're doing and having me on your, your show and just say it's, it is a great inspiration for me to see uh, folks like you doing your thing. So keep doing it. And thank you so much. Miigwech, 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 chachi miigwech. Oh, thank you so much, Jesse. And speaking of inspiration, because it's the Matriarch Movement podcast, I have one more question for you. Yeah, yeah. Who are matriarchs that you're inspired by? Oh my goodness, what what a list! Um, <laughs> I mean, obviously my mom, Alanisa Bomswin, who again I've known for thirty years and is a dear friend and and my idol and my hero and um, my mentor. Uh, Yvette Nolan, the playwright, has always been a dear friend and a. Um, an incredible inspiration. Carrie Swanson, who now runs the Indigenous Screen Office, I think is, you know, um, the future of arts leadership in this country is, is sort of with with her. Oh, boy. Uh, who else? I mean, Darlene Neponce and uh, um, women, Indigenous women, have always been really important to me. My mom, you know, that's obviously my mom and my grandmother. And, I, you know, I was very much raised by matriarchs. For me, that's who I've surrounded myself with. I will continue to do that. And so, yeah, boy, it's a long list. Like literally my entire life is just filled with, filled with these incredible women who've, who've supported me. That's just the beginning of the list. Sorry, whoever I forgot. And um, yeah, again, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jesse, for sharing that list. I know my list is pretty extensive, too. Um. <laughs> it's, it's so great when we have such great aunties. It's so good <laughs> to have a long list of aunties. Thank you. Hi, hi for listening to the show. If you like the podcast, check your podcast app now to make sure you're subscribed. I'm Shayla Olette Stonechild. You can find me along with more info on Matriarch Movement on Instagram at Shayla0H. And my podcast producer is Katie Lore. And I'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>